again, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again for what will be the last episode of 2023. And we're lucky to end season four with a story of redemption and giving. It was 96 or 97. I was sitting in a classroom at the School of Social Work at the University of Connecticut, and a young man passed by the hallway that I had recognized from the papers and local newscasts as Smurf, a member of a local gang from Hartford who was working along a UConn professor on violence reduction efforts. I came to learn that his name was Iran Azario. He was familiar to me because not too long before, gang activity in the city was at a crescendo with rampant violence in, most notably, the Frog Hollow section of Hartford. His name, to me, was synonymous with those issues, and I knew only what the media had portrayed without any information about him. I took what the media spoon-fed the community and prejudged his character. And something interesting happened shortly thereafter. I took a position in a pre-release program for those with less than a year on their sentences, including a number of people who were involved in the gang strike from the opposite side of the local gang, their rivals from a national gang. As I came to learn more about these men, I realized that they were shaped by their experiences growing up, poverty, addiction, broken families, violence as a survival tool, and many other things. It altered my perception of where they sat in life. Push forward 20 years or so, and I saw positive efforts to build a safer community for all by the Peace Center of Connecticut, and the young man I remembered from decades ago had grown up to be a person of action and not just words. When his first book, Rage to Peace, was released, I got my autographed copy in the mail and I read it in about two days. It afforded me the opportunity to sit down and talk with the man where I could listen and learn. Today, I get to introduce you to the founder of the Peace Center of Connecticut, a multiple community award winner and author, Iran Nazario. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the program. Good to see you again. Uh, good to see you as well. Thank you for this opportunity and thank you for the conversation we had and for your service to the community as well. Obviously, I learned a great deal about you during our meeting, and I'm grateful that you dedicated your career to helping other people. So I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Just to start out, can you talk about the mission and vision of the Peace Center of Connecticut? Yeah, so the Peace Center of Connecticut, we engage in partnerships to build action for achieving peace in our communities. That's how it's spelled out. So essentially what we are, we are a central hub for peace efforts across the state of Connecticut. We operate on the four pillars of service, and they are development, engagement, resources, and engagement as well. So one of the things that we focus on is really developing the minds of young people in middle and high schools to believe in their emotional intelligence and to believe in peace in their lives and in their community. One of the other components that we do is we work with young people who are currently remanded to the custody of the corrections institution in Hartford and Bridgeport. And we provide the same type of social emotional learning courses and sessions and life skills inside the detention centers. The programs we offer outside of the school are more community building programs. One of our projects is called Windows to Peace. We use art-based therapy to help individuals work through issues, communicate their message, their life, and things of that nature. We do professional development and consulting for organizations that serve young people who are looking to develop the abilities and capacities of their frontline staff to serve that population. And then we have a number of community events, activities focused on promoting peace and building peace across the state of Connecticut. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we do at the Peace Center of Connecticut. I founded it in 2017 after considering that I wanted to kind of take the leap and have an organization. And I did it with the mindset that we wanted to bring organizations collectively together to build peace 
across not only Hartford, but other places across the state of Connecticut. I think what's interesting about that, and you said it at the end, is kind of being collaborative with other organizations. And in the field that I work in, in substance use disorders, it gets to be competitive often and not collaborative. And it would make perfect sense that groups sit down and say, what do you do well and what do we do well? And let's see how we can combine our efforts. Right. That was the nature of it. I knew a long time ago when I started redeveloping myself that I had many challenges, many things that I hadn't learned, many processes, systems that I didn't understand. So if I'm going to offer services to a young person, I have to know my limitation and I have to know my challenge. So then if I'm not the right person, right fit, I need to refer that person to someone else that may be able to fill the gap that I can't fill. And that way that child receives the better quality service versus me forcing my service on a person that I'm not getting through to. So when I developed the Peace Center, uh, I was really looking at, okay, I know I can do this well. I know that I can do this average and I know that I can't do this at all. So how do I bring individuals in that can do that and bring the average to better and then increase and improve what I can do well? I just think that works. I think that helps organizations and people become better. But again, we, we do live in a particular society where people see other people succeeding and thriving, and they may not necessarily appreciate that. And unfortunately, they compete with one another. And you talked about what you do well versus average versus what you're not really comfortable doing. And I don't want to play into the title of this podcast, but we do call it scope of practice. And you recognize what your scope of practice is and stay kind of in that zone. Oh, absolutely. Get others to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. The book, it begins with the experience of losing your brother Ephraim to violence in 2008. And again, I'm very sorry to to hear that and to know that. Can you talk about the significance of that horrible event to the work that you do with the Peace Center of Connecticut? Or how about to the writing of the book? Well, it's interesting that it didn't play a role in either when I read the, the question. And this is why. The horrific situation that happened with my brother happened later on in my life. I was already in my 30s. So to say that my efforts at the Peace Center or to write the book were made possible because of that wouldn't be accurate. But what did happen when my brother was murdered and I made the decision to choose peace over anger and violence, it did for me affirm that I was headed in the right direction. So when I did write the book and when I did found the Peace Center, I was in a place where I felt that I had understood and learned myself better, that going through that trauma of losing my brother the way that it did and then having to fight through all these different emotions that actually were playing in my head and in my heart and coming out on the other side better for it really is what led me to saying, I'm ready to not only overcome this, but I'm ready to put my story out there so people can see the path that my life took. And also I'm ready to 1000% proclaim peace because I feel it, right? So I think that that's what happened with my brother. It really kind of said to me, you're there. You're where you need to be. And it's as heartbreaking as as it still is all these years Mm -hmm. later. I made a promise to myself that I would continue to serve my community despite my challenges. Uh, Here I am. Thank you for correcting me on that. I had no idea. And I'm glad to hear exactly how it played out for you. I think when you talk about in the book, the emotions and the struggles of the sadness and anger, I think it's compelling to understand you've got the devil on one shoulder and the <laughs> angel on another kind of must have been really difficult. It uh, was. It was. Yeah. 
in prior conversation when we met, we were talking, I told you that in those days in the 90s, when I saw you at UConn with Michael Barrero, I was skeptical because, again, I knew what was in the papers. I said, I'm not sure about this guy. Uh, you were wearing some sort of mask. Were you getting a lot of feedback from that in those days? Absolutely. And rightfully so. Now that I reflect back, as you know, think about the chaos that we unleashed on Hartford, right? Or the state of Connecticut as a whole. One of the years when we were at war with a number of gangs, there were 66 homicides, right? Something that for a small city like Hartford hasn't been seen since. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the trauma, when you think about the fear, when you think about everything that was playing out in the media, everything that was happening on the streets, people were right to feel fear, anxiety, right? Anger, resentment, lack of belief in our words, because our actions were indicating something completely different. So when I was at UConn and you saw me there, I was still very unpolished, right? Very young, still more involved on the streets than in, in the work field kind of person. So I still have mannerisms and attitudes, right? And then I still had this giant kind of image that was being portrayed about me in the media that made it possible for people to be like, I don't know if this guy is talking the truth. And people were right to feel that way. I had something spark in my heart and I felt that I was starting to find something that I was more passionate about than street life, but I, I wasn't sure how to go about it. So yeah, I got a lot of it. I got it from law enforcement. I got it from families of victims that were victimized by the gang that I was in. I was, I got it from enemies, rivals. I got it from strangers, right? That just recognized me from somewhere, all channeled with aggression or fear or uh, misunderstanding. But I understood it. I understand it now. I didn't understand it back then. I understand it now as something that people responded. They were responding to the time, right? They were responding yeah. to what was factual about the violence that was taking place. Here comes this guy, right? And you know, all of a sudden, everybody's supposed to believe what you're saying because you're saying it. So yeah, I did receive it. I got it a lot, actually. From every angle you can imagine it came, but I'm thankful that it worked out. It can be a humbling experience and use it to drive yourself forward, or it can go the other way, right? It's a tough call for a person. It is, because you can let it absorb you in a way where you start resenting those people and you start reverting back to behaviors that felt safe. They were hurtful behaviors, but they felt safe. It was a place that you were comfortable with. So yeah, it definitely was hard to manage. I mean, there were a lot of nasty comments and things like that that I could have earned or not, but definitely it was a challenge to navigate both. And just kind of put a, a picture for people who didn't know the situation, weren't around or who were listening to other parts of the country. You know, Hartford's a small city, 120, 125,000 people, something like that. At right. those times in the early 90s, gang activity per capita was equal to Chicago or Los Angeles. Certainly not the same number, but the same percentage of residents. And it was pretty significant. And those were some difficult times for everybody. Yeah, yeah. There were hundreds of shootings a week. We're talking about homicide numbers, but the number of shootings, right? The number of injuries, right? The traumatized communities, the facilities or, or buildings that were riddled with bullet holes, right? I mean, in a small, really congested, as you know, very congested, compacted community where block by block, people are on top of each other. They can't escape it. It's loud. And unfortunately, it was a pretty violent time. And, you know, my friends from up in the north end up in Blue Hills and up off of Albany, if something happened in the south end, a day later, they knew who, what, where up on the north end and vice versa. I mean, it's just sure. communication channels are electric through a small oh, yeah. city. 
Yeah, it might have been even faster than, than the next day. Let me tell you, might have been within hours. They knew who did it, why. It was yeah. incredible. So the book itself, it paints a clear picture of these incredible hardships that you experienced when you were growing up. You clearly provide the insight and why you made some of the decisions that you did. But it also, to me, speaks to others in similar situations, similar to these other experiences, maybe different, but similar. But it does paint a picture of what people can experience. Was your intention to kind of promote an overall understanding of the lives of young people that were written off? Yeah, I wanted to share on uh, the realities that some some young people may face and some people in different communities may face because many times as a young person, I've come to learn that whatever you experience at your young age shapes many of your decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously, we know from science that, you know, the brain develops tracks and paths that the more you expose them to that path, right, or that track, the more you behave that way. And then if you combine all the other factors around, you know, uh, poverty, or drugs, a fatherless house, dirty buildings, you name it, whatever it is, poor schooling, all of that is a kind of a, a mountain of stress and trauma that eventually leads to a young person making really horrible decisions. And it could be as simple as impregnating a girl when you're 13, right? To carrying a gun when you're 15 or to using a drug at a certain age, right? Or to jumping somebody with a group of people because mm -hmm. you want to represent a neighborhood. All of those actions come from somewhere. I was speaking to a group at Trinity College yesterday and I was mentioning to them that not one of us, not you, myself, not one of us that I've ever met is born and says, I can't wait to punch somebody in the face, right? Or I can't wait to shoot somebody. I can't wait to throw my life away with drugs, right? We're, we're born and it is what it is. But things start to shape us. So I thought the book to lend some insight into my path, right? And not to excuse my decisions and my actions, but to showcase some of the hardships that I was battling through without skills, right? Without teaching, without mentoring and guidance. I was left to all my own vices and I was hoping to figure it out and I was making bad decisions based on what I knew. So I think I wanted the book to share some of that light, especially because if you think about it, perhaps you know better than I, it's very rare. And after I wrote the book, I did a lot of research on books out there that speak to this kind of upbringing. They're very rare combination of books that speak to the lifestyle that I had and then look at transformation from a sense of you go from 100%, 1000 degree of anger, violence, and rage to peace and no conflict, right? Figuring out ways to mediate and things of that nature without leaning on religion, right? Without leaning on that kind of thing. This is solely my heart and saying, this is the right thing to do for me. Again, nothing against religion or any other beliefs that people have. But for me, it didn't play a major role in my life. Mm -hmm. it, what played a role in my life was the mentors that I had, the people that were in my position. So this book is really geared toward people that may look at life, not be ready for a religious experience or for something that's associated with some type of group, but mm -hmm. themselves, they have to find the tools themselves first to then make the decision on which path they want to take, whether religious or not, to find peace in their lives. Nowhere in the book are you glorifying any behavior, but what it did for me, and again, my work in the past helped to see this, is it, as I'm reading and I'm saying there wasn't another choice. The decisions that you made were very rational for the situations that you were in. Somebody may see them as, oh, they're ridiculous or they're bad decisions, whatever. But given the context of where where you and many other young men are, or where it's 
that makes perfect sense. It's very rational. And I think sometimes it's hard for people to grasp that. We are products of our context and situations. Can I use an example for a moment? Please do. Okay. So you have habits that you may not even know about, you yourself. And your responses to certain things will always be the same based on that habit. And it's not a bad habit. It's just something you you formed as a response to whatever that is, right? So for me, what I was creating was survival habits, a survivor mindset. So I had to do whatever was necessary to survive that particular situation. So I would revert easily, quickly to what I knew how to do. When you are not coached, when you are not guided, when you don't have parents that are uh, available to you, when you don't have any services that you're connected to, what else do you lean on? You just lean on, okay, I, I think this is right. Let me go do that. This, I survived. So maybe that works. You're literally researching what to do. Yeah. And in your research, you're failing miserably, but you're still alive the next day. So you're like, wow, okay, maybe if I just do that a little bit more, I'll be better. Not knowing until until you you learn later on, but when you're young, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all those years that, that I wrote about in the book, I really didn't know a strategy. It was just, okay, I get up and I figure it out. And this will come back up when we met and we speak and tell you that I wanted to call the podcast. Is it's you do what you got to do in the moment based on what's happening in your life. Yes. There were a few things that really jumped out at me while reading the book. And it wasn't necessarily the event. It was kind of your response to it. It was the point in your life that you had joined the gang and, and had to you had to be jumped in. And it was a double-edged sword because you had really disliked that experience, obviously. I'll never let this happen to me again. It's horrible. But it also helped you fill that need for belonging. And it put you in a position, though, where you said you had failed. Yeah. yourself. Can you share a little bit about those mixed feelings and help us understand what you felt you had failed at? I was angry at myself because I was victimized again. I had said to myself, never again will I be victimized. I was uh, brutally beaten by my mom and dad throughout my life. I was beaten when I was in prison. And you know, as I started getting bigger and stronger, my mind said, you will never be a victim again. Nobody will touch you and hurt you. But as you mentioned, my willingness to be connected to some type of family, right? My wanting to be connected to some type of family had me break that promise to myself where I allowed other human beings to beat me so I could become part of something and once again victimize me, not only once, but twice, uh, yeah. as you know in the book. But I had this sense of loss that I didn't have a village, right? I didn't have a community. I was transient, right? I just needed some type of formal place to be, some type of functioning structure to help me survive my situation. So I gave that up and you know I was ashamed. I was frustrated. Because when you're getting beat upon the body and by people and it and it's injuring you and hurting you, it triggers every single pain that you've ever had. Mm -hmm. And then for weeks after the beating, you're sore, you're bruised up, and it continues to awaken that particular sense of horror and shame that you felt when you were abused as a child. Right. So that's what I was kind of struggling with and heard about, I had allowed it to happen again. And difficult situation. It seems kind of backwards, right? To be accepted by this group, you first have to be abused by them. Yes. And I know that that's common practice, but it does, it's kind of some backwards thinking. And it's being played out on people who are consistently being re-traumatized by that because they probably went through it 
similar situations when they were younger. So I can see the difficult night. And thanks for helping us understand that. Um, back in 1987, there was a major expansion, Hartford Hospital, and there was a tremendous push by the community to see that more people of color were hired to work in those jobs that were coming up in construction and things like that. And it really led to a coming together of not just the community at large, but it come together of rival gangs in the city to advocate for the entire community with others. So not only with each other, but as part of an entire community. And it led to an agreement that community members would be considered for jobs. And I know you said you weren't sure if anybody even got a job from that, but it changed things a little bit. What are some of your memories from this work of kind of fighting the good fight? Well, first, let me uh, make just one minor correction. The, okay. the hospital was St. Fra Francis. Oh, St. Francis. Um, yeah, it was St. Francis. But what the heck were you doing well, up there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I made it. Let me tell you, when I was first recruited to actually serve as the voice for the gangs, right? Yeah. I was recruited to help recruit members of gangs to help us picket mm -hmm. the hospital because they were not hiring people of color for the construction jobs. I went to the different neighborhoods and, you know, I took a beating in one pretty good beating because I was in the wrong neighborhood, in the right neighborhood, but just not in the right space, I guess. The other community received me well because the leadership of the black community had advised them that I was coming in to recruit more people. So if you can imagine three of the major gangs in the city, right? Thousands and thousands of people. You're talking 1900 in the one I was in, about 3000 in the African-American gang. And then you're talking maybe a thousand to a 1200 in the Latino gang, right? All these groups decide through leadership that they're going to band together and go pick it at this hospital, right? It was probably one of the greatest successes of my life, just because not only did I survive the beating, wasn't murdered by the rival gangs, thankfully, but I saw in the faces of these men, mostly men, a few women, that they wanted different. I think it was the first time in my life that I had seen everyone band together because they felt the same about wanting something different. So getting exposed to that, obviously it went south after a conflict with police at the picket line and we ended up being maced and punched and arrested and bitten by dogs. I mean, you name it, yeah. it all happened. But the bonds were formed between different members of different gangs and they humanized each other. And they started seeing that perhaps that person is not as bad as they were. They were in the same fight as I was. They were in the same car. They were in the same jail cell right after the riot broke out there. But it wasn't intended to be a riot. It was intended for us to go there. And it felt amazing to be involved in that. But it, again, I think those were all seeds that were being planted in me that said, I can do something greater than, than what I was doing. And I think that, that being around leadership, being trusted, really did a lot of good for me. That's absolutely. And when you look at in the larger picture of great war generals and things, they humanize their rival on the other yeah. side. They know it's a person they want to learn how they think. It's not just somebody. So, And that it helps to strategize what they're going to do. And that can be done for positive or negative. Yeah, absolutely. When you made the decision that gang life was no longer part of your present, it just wasn't where you were at the moment, were there mixed feelings about that? Yes, there were because, you know, all of my life, uh, to that point, I knew the streets to be where my family was, right? Friends, associates, people from the community. And I had been so transient that I'd actually had or stayed or remained or, or slept in every neighborhood in the city. Yeah. There wasn't a corner of the city that I had never been in or had met any someone from. So to me, 
the emotion was, am I leaving them behind, right? Am I abandoning the people that gave me opportunity from time to time? But I knew also that I wasn't just going to walk away and not offer them other options. So any opportunity that I've ever had, ever, including till today, I've always reached back into my community and said, hey, do you need a job? Do you want to help me with this purpose or this passion or this effort? So when I did eventually decide that that was not the path for me, I vowed to never turn my back on anyone, but to offer them other solutions. So I'll give you an example. You talked about this earlier. Were there people that looked at me and said, oh, this guy is just a fraud, right? Like, you know, they're skeptical. There were members of the gangs. They were highly skeptical. They thought I was working for the federal government or, or I was an informant because I had found a job and it was with the housing authority and a couple of other places where I was being paid and I was above the table and I was visible and I was going to meetings with the mayor and the police chief and all that. And they were like, he has to be working for them. So I had to all earn their confidence and trust mm -hmm. that I was trying to do something different. I had a very powerful exchange with a gentleman years into my career of serving young people. I had had a young man come in and he asked me this, to work with his son. He said, hey, my son is taking blame for a triple murder that I know he didn't commit. But because he wants to be down with this certain gang, he's willing to take the rap because he thinks he's a teen. He won't get a lot of time for it. I need you to help my son. So I was able to work some things out, met with his son, eventually convinced him to recant his confession. And he was a witness. He actually eventually testified against whoever did it. And they got the right person. So a year went by. Didn't hear from the guy again after I helped his son, which is fine. One day he comes to my office, says, hey, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I say, sure. He says, I just want to share something with you. I'm happy I didn't kill you. I sat back in my chair and I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I was a member of a gang and I was hired to kill you. I was sent on a mission to kill you, but I could never find you. I could never find you where I was looking for you at. And if I would have found you and killed you, my son would be serving life in prison for murder. That particular experience happened quite frequently, not about somebody wanting to kill me, but about someone saying, hey, thank you for saving my son. Thank you for saving my daughter. Thank you for helping me find a job, right? So for me, yes, it was double-edged sword because I loved my community, loved my people, loved my friends, but I had to figure out on the other end, what can I do to bring them along and show them what I'm experiencing on this side? Because again, as I said earlier, none of them wanted to be, as a young child, wanted to be what they were when they became what they were. They did, and I know that. You get shaped and you get formed by the community and what you see around you and survival. Sure. Absolutely. That's a powerful story. Thanks for sharing that. What do you remember most? Well, I think you just answered it. Say, what do you remember most about making that decision? And and it's hard to top what you just said. That's a you know, that's pretty significant. You have this ability to repair broken family relationships. And that stayed with me after reading the book because quite honestly, the ability to forgive has kind of paved the way to so much forgiveness that has come back to you. And that was a great example of it. As we talked about it a few weeks ago, you humbly said, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And it seems that might have been a theme throughout your life, first to survive and then to thrive. Does that seem like an accurate statement? Yeah, it's very accurate. I did have to do what I had to do. But once I learned that doing what I had to do in a negative context was contributing to my demise and to my continued failure, I had to do what I had to do differently. Yeah. And that's what you and I talked about. It was it was really about what can we do to change the meaning of that 
So we do what we have to do. So we don't end up doing what we have to do in a bad way. Right? right. So for me, doing what I had to do was walking away from the person that said, hey, I have a blunt. Let's drive around and smoke. No. Oh, I have a gun. Give me a ride down the street while I have this gun on me. Or I got beef or we, I got a problem with somebody at a club. Come over here and back me up. So that's doing what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do differently when you know differently. And once I knew differently, I didn't want to do what I had to do in a negative way. Exactly. My Angela once said, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. And I think that's a perfect kind of way to encapsulate. And I don't think that that's so different from what the average person does. It's just, again, context and situation makes it different. And the things like social determinants of health and all that really affect those in urban environments significantly greater in a negative way and make it harder sometimes to do the right thing. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we finish up? No, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to be here for your listeners. If you can kindly grab the book and share it with your community, I believe that young people and people who are overcoming incarceration, uh, justice-impacted individuals, lived experience folks who are struggling out there are perhaps a sentence away, right, from changing their perspective. So hopefully the book will arrive in the right hands, get the right message out, and save a few people from making disastrous decisions as I made. And for me, believe in the opportunity and the the power of someone to completely change their lives. Because too often we judge immediately, right? We judge continuously individuals and we don't necessarily ever really look at the possibility in someone once we've made up our mind. I've come to the realization in my career and all the lives that have been transformed in my eyes, we're more capable of transforming than people believe. So please share that message as you encounter any, everyone in your life. You certainly have changed lives, changed yourself, and changed communities. The book is available on Amazon. Are there better ways for, for folks to get that? Yeah, but folks can uh, go to my website, nazariomotivation.com, nazariomotivation.com, and they can write me, blog me, directly message me. They can request a signed copy from me, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll mail it to them whoever they want to meet out to. I'm creating stories on there. I have a couple of other books that are going to be released next year. So yeah, folks can keep track of what I'm doing on that page. And I'll make sure that I put your website on there so people can access when we see that. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I had a good time getting to know you a little bit. I hope we get to continue in the future. And I look forward to the next books. Yeah, well, who paid for coffee when we saw each other last time? Or no, we had no coffee. We had we had nothing, right? We just sat there. So I owe you coffee. No, so we, I owe you one. That's that's what I was <laughs> I've got some great Colombian coffee I have to bring to you when I see and, you. <laughs> all right, fantastic. Okay, we can do that. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's going to do it for this episode, and it's also going to do it for season four of Scope of Practice. We'll be back in January to kick off season five, and I really want to say thank you to all my guests. Thanks to everyone who listens to make that possible. I never thought we'd be going into five seasons. And I also want to offer my thanks to Iran for taking the time out of his schedule to chat with us and share his story and his thoughts. And on behalf of all of us here at the Connecticut Certification Board, I want to say thank you and have a safe, healthy, happy, and most importantly, peaceful new year.